And now it's time on Flame CCR to take a look behind the studio's green door to find out who is in today's chat room. Midnight, one more night without sleeping. Watching till the morning comes creeping. Green door, what's that secret you're keeping? And now, are you listening? Hello, my name is John Cheek. I'm the placement worker at St Luke's Parish Church in Huntington in Chester. I'm also joined today by a theology student in Chester, Mr Paul Jackson. And the subject we're going to be looking at today, the theme of our interview, is quite shocking. It is quite an alarming subject matter, but please stay with us because we interview a Merseyside man called Glyn who originally is from Widnes and later on went to live in Liverpool and still lives in the Merseyside area today. And we talk about Glenn's life and we talk about the most urgent, the most serious, the most alarming subject matter that perhaps maybe we can possibly talk about. But do keep listening. And I'm here at Chester University with theology student Paul Jackson, joining Glyn and I today. Glyn, were you ever religious in any way? It's a good question, and, and it depends on what you mean by religious. As a kid, I grew up in a family which definitely had faith. And as, as a younger child, so probably before the age of 11, I would have had involvement with the church. As a family, we'd go to church kind of traditional religion and church probably would have interacted with that through scouts and school and things like that. I suppose I wouldn't have thought of myself as religious, although I would have held some belief in God as a kid. But then we, as a f- family, we stopped going to church around the age of uh, I think I was about 11 at the time, so kind of primary, secondary school. And which sort of church was this? Not really sure. As a child, you don't really. It wasn't like an Anglican church. They went to a Pentecostal church in Widnes for a little while. And then I remember a couple of times going to a church in Warrington. But I'm not quite sure. It's like an independent free church type of thing. So, but I don't remember going to a church you know, every Sunday, week in, week out. And if we did, it's just my memory. To, I don't remember it. Although there was definitely faith in the family, absolutely. You know, my, my parents um, had a real faith. I knew that. So religion, not really religious, no. Um, and any kind of semblance of that, I started to lose, really, through my teens. So as you got older, you became a teenager and you did the sort of things that many teenagers do. I think you had one or two scrapes as well, the odd punch-up along the way. Yeah, I think as a teenager, I, I had a very happy childhood. So as, as a kid, I, I remember being loved. I remember being taken care of. I had a good group of friends. I had a good bringing up, if that's the right word. <laughs> and I enjoyed my childhood as well. I enjoyed my teen years. So I was a kind of kid who was very... I could do anything. So I played in the rugby team, the football team, the basketball team. I ran for the school. I had a good group of friends, did lots of things. I enjoyed myself. I would go for it, really did uh, enjoy everything. As I went through school and went into college, 
university and uh, again found school fairly easy straightforward so I kind of didn't really struggle academically I, I found it quite easy went over to Leeds and did quite well at university as well enjoyed life so I'd enjoyed sports and then I enjoyed socializing going out a lot got involved in a lot of things that university students do quite a few drink drugs other things and was living a, a quite a, a high life in a way I've always wanted to make the most of the things I, I had and did so I did that absolutely did that I think along with that any idea of God or religion if I had had any dwindled more and more so it made less and less sense to me probably by the time of going to university I would have had a quite a coherent argument of why God didn't really exist. It didn't add up for me. Religion was obviously didn't add up for me. There were clearly good reasons why that didn't add up. But even the God question um, didn't really add up. And I could probably articulate a fairly good argument why not, I think, really. And then as time went on in universities, got more and more interested through few people on the course and the course I was doing took an interest in I suppose more oriental type ideas of the world and how it's made up and so I was quite interested from I was studying health so from a health perspective how the eastern religions benefit health more than the monotheistic religions. so although I wasn't interested in God or religion I, I had looked at the idea of how an, a balanced life and one in which you found an inner strength was good for the emotional, spiritual, if there was that aspect, and physical health. So, I, if anything, I would have probably stuck myself in the camp of a, you know, a, a not a new age, but I would have been more sympathetic with that type of Eastern thinking, really. Increasingly, life was becoming unsatisfactory for you. How old were you when you began to first realise, look, what's going on? I'm not happy with all of this. It wasn't a growing thing. It was a ton of bricks. I lived life to the full. I enjoyed life. I went out. I studied. I, I got a job. Life was good. There wasn't a growing, dawning feeling of dissatisfaction. My problems kind of hit wham, bam, overnight, really. And that's what got me questioning the idea of God. And what happened? It all followed a chicken tandoori. <laughs> As I say, I'd, I'd gone through university, I'd done my degree, I'd done a teaching course, I'd nailed a decent job, had a girlfriend, you know, money was okay. Things were good, actually. And then overnight, I started to basically experience out of nowhere whilst eating a chicken tandoori. It happened, but I don't think there's anything to do with that. Panic attacks. So if anybody listening has had panic attacks, then you'll know exactly what I mean and how um, horrific they are. But they came on me just out of the blue and they came on full 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 strength so it's a, a, just a, a sense of utter fear utter panic with no apparent reason why and as i look back 
I can't pinpoint any reason. There's nothing had gone wrong, no big deal in my life which had kicked this off. So I don't know why it came then, but it did come then, and it threw me into a spiral of times of utter utter anxiety so I'd go to bed and my mattress would be wringing wet with sweat just from spending a whole night rolling around and absolutely anxious and then in the day I'd have moments of complete lucidity I'd, I'd suddenly think wow gosh what has just happened and then it kicked back in so right throughout the day it was a roller coaster of panic attacks and as anybody who knows anything about anxiety often what kicks in after them is depression so soon into that it was a cocktail of quite severe anxiety followed by the gloom and the, the blanket a grey blanket of life's really bad Life's bad for many reasons, for many people, and there are often concrete and discernible reasons why. One of the difficulties with anxiety or depression is you can't pinpoint why, and that's in its own way a difficult path to walk. So I went from being a guy who was happy-go-lucky, positive, had the strength within me to take on the world and do anything, actually, to being somebody who was really, 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 really struggling. And I'm quite a, I suppose, a quite a practical person. I came to a point and I weighed up different things you could do. And I realised that my philosophy of if you look deep inside you, you'll find the answer to anything. When I looked deep, deep inside me, I was smacked in the face with a steel fist. There was no answer inside me to this one. And I was utterly floored by the situation. And that was a, that was a harsh wake-up call. So my whole system of belief was shattered in that. The answers in you, if you look deep enough, didn't work for me at all. So what conclusion did you reach? I thought I would sit this out and, 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 and see if things got better and use the strength I had the optimism, generally an optimistic person I had, see how I could sit with it. As time wore on, my strength was sapped and lagged and I got to a point at which I thought, actually, if I look at the life I've had, I've had a good life, I've known some great people, I've done some wonderful things and it's been a ball. And actually, if this is my lot now and this is the way that things will be for me, then I'm best checking out. If you can imagine a lucid moment of thinking, actually, it's probably, if you put the things in the scales, it probably, it leans towards not carrying on. And I decided that um, I would make plans to take my own life um, if things didn't improve or radically change by a certain time. This whole thing in society about we can find the strength, we can find the answers within us or within our past. Mm, which is a popular, it's flooding in, isn't it, nowadays? Society often tells us, the world tells us, advertising tells us, that so often we can find the answer within us or within our past. How do you feel about that sort of idea? Is that actually a dangerous idea? Paul, it's not. A dangerous idea when everything's going well necessarily it all works when life's going well so if you're having a good life you're having a good time you've got a lot going for you then yeah great look inside yourself everything's good but when it all falls apart that's when that suddenly shows itself for what it is really and it's actually an empty philosophy because when you're falling apart inside then there's no strength inside yourself to find so where do you find it then and also looking at your past i mean yeah if you had a good past that's great but what if you haven't 
what if you've had an upbringing or a past that's been awful then where do you find the strength in that and then you have to invent something so yeah if it's going well fine i suppose but life doesn't always go well so it, it kind of it almost doesn't see the reality of life it doesn't see life for what it actually is and what what it can be which is actually life can be awful and life can be difficult and then you've got nothing to hold on to when it's like that as a theology student at the moment we're often given the impression of the world that we can find the strength within us or within our past how dangerous glenn how old were you and where were you when you reached this very alarming state of affairs I was 28 years old at the time and living in Liverpool, not far from Sefton Park, just off Smithdown Road at the time, yeah. As I said earlier, I kind of taken a as lucid as could be decision that I would take my own life and I would do it in a way which would cause the least harm and distress to people around me. So I thought about how that should happen. I thought about the fact that people often do these things as a cry for help and that if I did this, this needed to be definitive properly done and, and, and to cause as little distress and pain although inevitably these things don't happen without such things um, however suffice to say that there was planning and thought about it i put a date on it put a an actual time by which if things didn't change dramatically then i would go ahead and do that so that then locked into a, i had a certain amount of time left on the planet which was a rather bizarre thought, really, but many people will know about that. They'll identify with that. And as that date started to approach, things didn't get better at all. In fact, they probably got from terrible to as terrible, really. Nothing got better. One thing that did dawn on me was that the way I thought about the world and where our strength comes from, clearly I was wrong about that. And the idea dawned on me, was there anything in this world bigger than myself, i.e. some god or some power which could help me because I couldn't help myself? And that idea dawned on me and I started to think about that, actually. I started to think about what that might mean. Um, I'd already eliminated for me what I understood of Eastern philosophies and I know that's a broad term which encompasses lots of things but, but where I was at at the time and what I understood for me that didn't work. I went to a mosque to find out about the other big religions and I, and I did. I went and I spoke to a very warm, intelligent and welcoming guy in a mosque who took the time uh, and explained to me in detail Islam and, I, and it was fascinating and I enjoyed it but I came away from it thinking that this is of people it's sincere people with integrity um, but it didn't add up for me personally and that's no that that was about me but it didn't make sense for me in the situation that I was in so, and strangely enough, from my own upbringing, the last place I came to thinking about was the Bible and Jesus, really. And I'd always kept a Bible. I don't know why. Well, I do know why, actually. When I was 11 years old and I left my primary school, they presented us with um, a Good News Bible. So in the front, and I still have it, it says presented to Glyn Jones. Ditton Church of England Primary School, Huff Green, Witness, 1988, I think it is. 
And I'd always kept that, never really read it, and it was still on the shelf. And came home, I think it was the same night, actually, or the the night after. Picked that Bible up, and I started to read through what I now know as the, the book of John, the Gospel of John. And I read the whole Gospel of John, actually, in one go. I found it absolutely riveting, fascinating. And having grown up with parents with faith and gone through a a Church of England school and scouts, what I was reading, I'd never really connected and it never made such sense. But I, I understood from this guy who's writing that there was a God who was very present with us and a God who passionately loved us like no other, really. And that, for me, was good news. The title made sense. (laughs) I'd never, ever felt or experienced anything like that. And actually, something flooded into my heart, and that was hope. A lot of hope flooded in from that. And I kind of reasoned with myself in my bedsit in Liverpool, and I thought, if that's true, then that God is with me right now. He's with me in this pain and this terror and he loves me and that must mean something. I don't know what that must mean but that must mean something and it's something to do with hope. And at that point I got faith. I read through this book and I got faith in this Jesus and I put my faith in him then actually.
hadn't you made this pact with yourself that by a certain date, if things hadn't got better, yeah. you were going to end your own life? Yeah, and this was a key moment, really. This was something new for me. As I held my conversation with myself or God, whichever one you want to believe, in my bed sits, I almost struck a deal with God and I said, I believe that you're here and I believe that you love me. And this is something personal. It's not something I suggest that everybody does, but it was something that was very important personal for me. And I said to this God, I said, will you confirm that what I've just believed that no one else knows about is true? And I said, would you send someone along to me who I've never met before? And would that person confirm the two things which have just given me hope? That you are with me and that you love me. And as I thought about that, I thought, well, actually, someone could just say that. The street preacher could just say that. Or, or, you know, I could wander into a church and I'm sure someone would make reference to that. I said, you know, I'm not going to go to any place of worship or church. I'm not talking about anybody I know. I'm not talking about any street preacher. But I want a stranger to walk straight up to me and tell me that you're with me and that you love me, just as I've read in this book. And that was my request, that was my first um, prayer, if you like, all alone. And I never told anyone about it, um, that was crucial. The next day, I woke up with my anxiety and my depression. I had hope that things were going to be different. I think as the day went on, the hope waned, and by the evening, I was starting to question whether or not I'd just had a, a moment of wishful thinking. I think it was the next day, actually, I went out, out I was walking through uh, some playing fields, Wavertree playing fields in Liverpool, and I remember the day, it was a grey day, and it was drizzling, and it was a most miserable day, in fact it was a really miserable day, because in some ways, not only did I feel terrible, but was feeling that the hope I'd found a few days earlier didn't seem to be materialising, and I was losing that quickly, and I kind of walked along, head down through this park, there was nobody in the park that I could see, not remember, and I carried on walking. And as I walked along, I, I remember looking up and I noticed that about a hundred yards in front of me, there was a girl walking away from me. So we weren't going to cross paths. And I carried on walking. As I did so, I, I looked up and I saw that the girl had actually stopped. So I was catching up and was going to walk past her. And the girl stopped me and she, she said, excuse me. And I said, yes. And um, I remember the words she said, actually, uh, amongst other things she probably said, but she said, um, I don't normally do this. And she said, I hope you don't think I'm a nutter. <laughs> and then I said, well, yeah, what, what is it? And she said, I need to tell you something. And I didn't see this coming. And the first thing she said is, you need to know that there's a God and this God is with you. And when she said that, something started to stir and I thought, is this... Is this, can this be true? And then she said, I need to tell you a second thing. And that God who's with you, he loves you. Those two things. And she told me the two things. And, and as she told me just those two things, she didn't talk about church or suffering or anything else. She just told me the two things. It was as if I was, you know, when you look through a camera, an older camera, which you turn the lens and it comes into focus. And it was as if I, all my life I'd looked through a camera lens, which was slightly blurred. And as she said these two things, the focus came sharp. And I actually saw something, a picture of the world, which I had never 
forever. And at that moment then, that did it for me. That There are, you know, nigh on a million people in the Merseyside conurbation and for that person to come up to me and tell me those two things changed, you know, that hope I'd had absolutely flooded in big style and, and I knew there and then that there was a God who was with us and a God who dearly loves us. And then my next thought was, why doesn't everybody know this? <laughs> Um, I walked out of the park with this girl. She worked in a hospital. She was on her way to work, actually. She wasn't working for a church or anything. She was just off to work. And years later, I spoke to her and asked her. And she she said she just felt it was important to stop and, and tell me that. She didn't understand the significance of what she said. But for me, it changed my whole life. I take it you finished with any plans to end your own life? Yeah, absolutely. The thing that flooded in big style was hope. And anybody who knows anything about faith, I think they'd understand that something precedes faith, and that's hope. And I had hope, and hope came and brought faith in a big way, and I walked in faith then. My anxiety and my depression didn't disappear overnight. In fact, it took over a year for it to completely go. And what carried me and walked me through there was a a resolute, solid hope and faith which changed my life, healed me, held me, and still does to this day. So um, for me, it was an amazing coincidence, if you like. (laughs) Coincidence? Question mark? Lynn, thank you for sharing this with us. Very briefly now, finally, if anybody is listening to this, life is very dark. If anybody's listening, feeling as if they seem to have a permanent cloud hanging over them, what one thing would you say or would you suggest? Yeah, I think that the Psalms talk of people being in miry pits and in dark places, imprisoned behind bars. And the Psalms talk of God putting a new song in our mouths, a song of praise. The prophets talk of those who call on the Lord will be saved. And I'd say that these words for me are absolutely true. I peg and build my whole life on them. There is hope in Jesus. There is hope in Jesus. There is life in Jesus. And there's a new song that the Lord gives for those who call on him with all their heart.
Jackson, you're a theology student. Where does depression come into the Bible and how well acquainted is God with this black cloud that can often descend upon people from nowhere, it would seem? Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of people you could probably say suffered from depression. I mean, Elijah's one of them. There's a story in the Old Testament of Elijah. He deals with some prophets who aren't from God and then he goes and sits under a tree and he's depressed, basically. Jonah, you could say, also possibly suffered from depression. There was there's a moment with him as well of sadness that came through. And then, of course, I wouldn't say he suffered with depression, but, of course, the ultimate example of suffering is Jesus. And there's a passage in the Old Testament from Isaiah 53 which says, He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. And there's the thing of Jesus suffering himself, but also at the cross, carrying our sorrows on himself. He carries our sin, but he also carries our sickness, and he also carries our sorrows. He takes that on himself and associates with us in that and experiences that. And there's the whole thing in he prays in the garden before he goes to the cross. Says, God, could you please take this away from me? But if it's your will, then let it be done. And then on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he's carrying our sin and being separated from God and our sorrows and our sicknesses and all of that. By saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's, of course, quoting the psalmist from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was quoted by Jesus on the cross. A man of sorrows and acquainted grief. Paul Jackson. Thank you. The Liverpool football manager, Bill Shankly, once says that football is not a matter of life or death. It's much more important than that. And when I spoke with Glyn, I really did get to see how important life and death can be. How empty life can be for many, many people, even for people listening to this at this moment. Life can be so empty and the emptiness can gnaw away. At the same time, how ending it all does have its appeal for certain people in certain situations. Apparently, the experts tell us that one in four of us will suffer from depression at any one stage in our lives. The experts also tell us that at any one time, one in six people in society today will be currently suffering from mental illness. That's one in six people at any one time in this country will be suffering from mental illness. And as probably there will be a lot more people than that listening to this, it's fair to say that several of our listeners at this moment will be listening sadly whilst experiencing mental illness. This is how prominent these conditions are in society today, in individual lives, even though they're not spoken about. This is the Word on Health Report with Paul Pennington. Word on Health. The stories that matter, the issues that count. Your personal prescription for your very best of health. We're looking at stigma and aspects of mental illness and how that contributes to stopping people recognising or talking about their situation and in many cases prevents them from coming forward to be treated, in some instances with very tragic consequences. The really good news is the tide has turned when it comes to treating a whole range of mental illnesses and today the vast majority of conditions can in time be overcome or successfully managed. Public education has been cited as a means of being able to overcome stigma. When it comes 
to one of our most common mental health conditions, depression, research shows that many of us still don't know what depression is. Far too many of us wrongly believe that depression is either a sign of weakness, an indication of an over-emotional person, or something that people can easily snap out of. To help us understand just what happens in the brain when someone is clinically depressed, I spoke to leading London psychiatrist Dr Robin Lawrence. Depression is an abnormality of the mesolimbic system functioning within the brain. It's associated with shrinkage of the hippocampus. So it's a physical illness within a deep structure of the brain, which the main outlet of is down to the hypothalamus, to the anterior pituitary, releasing hormone to the adrenal glands. Most of us know what's happening to our mesolimbic system if, by accident, we step off a pavement in front of a moving bus. We hear the horn, our head is turned, we see the bus, we jump back, and as the bus goes past the end of our nose, our heart's beating fast, our mouth is dry, we have butterflies in our tummy, and we think, I just nearly got run over by a bus. All of that is controlled by the mesolimbic system. This deep central structure of the brain is absolutely essential for survival. Human beings are fortunate in having an extremely sensitive threat detection mechanism. Because it is so sensitive, sometimes it breaks down. And it breaks down because most of the threats that we face in modern life are not the number 37 bus that we had mistakenly stepped out in front of. They're complex threats financial insecurity, emotional insecurity, of relationship, threats around success and failure. And whilst we're facing these threats, our mind is saying, look out, get away. And we're saying, no, no, be quiet. I've got to concentrate. I need to solve the problem. Eventually, the afferent nerve stops firing and the receiving nerve becomes overly sensitive. So the symptoms of depression are two apparently incompatible experiences. The first is a dull, empty ache, like boredom with pain, toothache of the soul. A patient might say to me, I can't feel my feelings, but it hurts. Depression isn't just a little bit of sadness. It's a deep, inconsolable ache, often associated with sudden outbursts of emotion, which are disproportionate to the stimulus. Anger, fear, and excessive sadness would be the three biggest, so stereotypically men who are depressed start fights in pubs. Women have panic attacks in Tesco's and both find themselves crying over the end of a film that they've seen 15 times as the music swells. Of course, clinical depression is associated with physical symptoms. Early morning wakening, loss of appetite, loss of weight, loss of libido, change in bowel habit, change in the frequency of menstruation. Life is like swimming through treacle. It's difficult to get up and do anything. These symptoms are not because a person is neurotic. Neuroticism can prevent a person getting to sleep at night because they're so worried, but it can't wake you up from sleep at 3, 4, 5 in the morning. Also, there's something called diurnal variation in mood, when a person's mood is better at night and worse in the morning. This is a physical phenomenon which needs treatment it's estimated that about two in three adults have depression at some time in their life, and the average length of an episode of depression is six to eight months. It can take time to recover, and of course, each person's recovery or ability to deal with their condition is made that much easier by the support and understanding of well-informed friends, family, and society in general. So please, find out more about depression. Log on to www.wordonhealth.com. That's www.wordonhealth.com. 
Word on Health. It's been calculated that one person takes their own life every 40 seconds. This means more people end their lives a year than homicide or war combined. For the past decade, a collective of healthcare professionals, academics, charities, crisis workers and people who've attempted suicide across the world join forces to provide an annual focus organised by the International Association for Suicide Prevention and the World Health Organisation to try and reduce deaths by suicide. Dr Alan Berman is from the International Association for Suicide Prevention. Stigma is an incredibly significant barrier to suicide prevention for many reasons. First and foremost, we know that about 90% of people who die by suicide or who make life-threatening attempts have a mental disorder. So first and foremost, stigma surrounds mental illness and the help-seeking that is necessary for those of us who are clinical professionals to treat those mental illnesses. We can treat and treat successfully roughly about 80% of all patients who come into our offices. Getting them into our offices is part of the problem. Males in particular are not help seekers. On top of that, stigma is there relative to the fear that a lot of people have about a treatment that is going to be more intensive than perhaps they're willing to engage. Dr. Berman, what are the key ways that we can break stigma? First, it requires, again, public awareness that will energize people who care or who have family member at risk for suicide to reduce the barriers. We have to advocate for a greater efforts to find ways to mobilize men in particular to seek help. So really, stigma is only going to change over time when the populations in various countries recognize that these barriers must come down if we indeed are going to save lives and social systems that care about their population indeed should be reducing all forms of barriers when life is at stake. From speaking with all the charities, psychiatrists and therapists I've been lucky enough to meet, one common wish has emerged, and that is for those of us living with mental illness or going through a crisis to reach out for help sooner rather than later. Having lived with episodes of mental illness myself, I can understand the reticence that people have about coming forward and starting to talk about what they're going through. But it's that first step that can make one heck of a difference. There is an organisation we can approach anonymously without fear of prejudice or being judged. The Samaritans. I went to the central London branch of the Samaritans to meet Peter Gibson from the organisation. Peter, the Samaritans, who are they? 20,000 volunteers across 200 branches, England and Ireland, Scotland, Wales. And what we do is we are here 24-7 to talk to people. When life gets too much, it doesn't matter what the reason is, but if you've got nobody else to talk to, you can speak to us. Telephone, text, email. When should people contact the Samaritans? It's when problems are beginning. That's when we will probably do our best work. When life's got too much and you don't know who to turn to, that's the time to call Samaritans. It's a confidential service, right? Absolutely. 100% confidentiality. We don't tell anybody, police, judiciary, no one. If someone turns to the Samaritans, what can they expect from you? People often wonder how talking helps, and it helps hugely. There are lots of places you can go where they'll actively intervene in your life. You know, doctors will give you medication, counsellors will spend time giving you a therapeutic effect or whatever they do. What we do is give people a chance to talk about things in a, an open way where they're in complete control. And often that space brings the stress levels down, for starters. Short circuits some of the conversations that are going around in their head. But more often than not, it's a really safe place to talk about those things that actually you find the hardest to talk about.
You can contact the Samaritans anonymously without fear of prejudice or being judged 24 7, 365 days of the year. Their telephone number is 08457 909090. That's 08457 909090. Help us defeat stigma and mental illness in all its guises by finding out more. Log on to www.wordandhealth.com. We can signpost you to a range of organizations that want to help. That's www.wordandhealth.com. Word on Health. According to research, nearly 9 out of 10 people with mental health problems have been affected by stigma and discrimination. Mental illness is common. It affects millions of people in the UK and their friends, families, work colleagues and society in general. In fact, one in four of us, including children, will experience a mental health problem at some point in our lives. Despite its prevalence, fueled by fear and ignorance, society in general has stereotyped views about mental illness and how it affects people. Stigma can show itself in many different forms. Sometimes it's very direct, with an insulting comment. At other times, it can be subtle, with people being labelled as violent, unstable or dangerous. However it manifests itself, it can have a significant impact on sufferers of mental illness, as leading London psychiatrist Dr Robin Lawrence explains. Stigma has a number of impacts on an individual sufferer. It prevents them seeking treatment. It adds to the isolation of the person suffering. It can add to the whole idea that the person is to blame rather than the person is suffering from an illness. Thus, a person starting to develop any form of of mental illness can be beset with fears surrounding loss of control, confusion, the inability to believe that any help is available, and the shame which prevents them seeking help even perhaps from their GP. Thus, you have an illness inside a box of fear and shame, and the illness eats away inside whilst the person pretends, probably unsuccessfully, that things are going all right. So where do we begin in starting to shift public perception of mental illnesses? We need courage, we need clarity, we need information, and people have to get the news. The tide has turned in the treatment of depression, anxiety, Anxiety, bipolar affective disorder and indeed even schizophrenia. Let's start by integrating mental health back into health. Psychiatric illnesses are illnesses that are not a part of social services. The treatment of a mental illness is the treatment of something which is medical. In fact, I don't even really like the phrase mental health or mental illness. My patients have physical illnesses of the brain which have psychological symptoms. So just like your liver can misfunction, so can your brain. And when your brain misfunctions, there are various symptoms and those symptoms are characteristic of various syndromes. And some of those syndromes are actually individual diseases. But these are not diseases of the mind they're diseases of the body which affect the mind. And just in the same way that you can have a raised fever with pneumonia and become delirious, the solution is not looking at hallucinations or delusions that the person with the pneumonia has. The solution is in treating the pneumonia. And we need to get beyond where we think the mind is something separate from the body rather than a function of the body and realize that we should be treating psychiatric conditions as a part of acute medical care. 
My understanding is, Dr. Lawrence, most people who experience mental health problems recover fully or are able to live and manage them, especially if they get help early on. The treatments we have today are much, much more effective. They're much more patient-friendly, user-friendly. And the treatment will involve negotiation between the sufferer and the treater to find the most effective treatment available, which will include physical and psychological treatments. Indeed, perhaps it could be said it's unethical to treat depression, anxiety or bipolar affective disorder without psychotherapy. Because whilst I'm very convinced that these illnesses are illnesses of the brain and brain dysfunction and brain biochemistry, there is always the question, why here, why now? What has provoked this response to your situation? And of course, each person's recovery or ability to deal with their condition is made that much easier by the support and understanding of well-informed friends, family and society in general. So please, find out more about mental illness in all its guises. Log on to www.wordandhealth.com We can signpost you to a range of organisations that want to help. That's www.wordonhealth.com Word on Health, on air and online 52 weeks of the year with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, your personal prescription for your very best of health. Often we don't know what's going on in people's lives. Often we don't know what's happening in their hearts and in their minds. Very often, for many people, Life seems so empty, so meaningless, but it is worth remembering that in the depths of despair, there remains hope. My name is John Sheik. I'm the placement worker at St. Luke's Parish Church in Huntington, in Chester. And if some of the things that you have heard on this programme have affected you, please do feel free to get in touch with Flame at our website, www.flameradio.org. But if your needs are greater, and if you do need help, do seek help. Log on to www.wordandhealth.com. We can signpost you to a range of organisations that want to help. That's www.wordandhealth.com. In the telephone book, in the yellow pages, there are contact details where you can approach people and seek help for yourself. Do seek help. If you need it, do go and seek it.
turned away from it all like a blind man. Sound offense, but it don't work. Keep coming up with love, but it's so slashed and torn. Lynn, thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you, Paul. We've closed the chat room door, but please tune in next time to Flame CCR on 1521 Medium Wave for more from Green Door Studios chat room. Green Door! I hope you enjoyed this program, which is under the copyright of Wirral Christian Media Limited. Details of the Flame CCR broadcasts and webcasts are on our website, www.flameradio.org. Thank you for listening. Flame.